Hi, this is Ren from NextGen Personal Finance, and you're listening to the NGPF Podcast. Today on the show, Tim is joined by Rachel Labby, a student at Purdue University who is an entrepreneur and the co-founder of Building Financial Freedom, and she is here to share her journey through personal finance education, internships, and social entrepreneurship. Rachel also talks about her own investing strategy, the impactful figures she looks up to, and the intersection of business and social impact. Enjoy. So today we've got an extra special guest, Rachel Lobby. She is a finance major at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. And welcome, Rachel. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right, let's get started right away. Actually, why don't you talk a little bit about early money lessons? I always love to hear about what do young adults remember from their childhood that's really stuck when it comes to money? Yeah, so... In terms of early money lessons, one thing is saving. I've always been a huge saver, which is very different from my little sister. She's a huge spender. And so that's definitely a really good habit to have. So I'd always store my money in pouches, but I actually stored my money in my closet at one point. And then like half of it went missing. So that also taught me that banks are really important as well because you need somewhere secure to keep your money. And I'd also say another key lesson is actually knowing the value of money. My parents are from Ghana. So they've seen people struggle to pay for really cheap medical procedures and it costs so little to people in America. So knowing that money here just a little bit can help people around the world and being more conscious of that and how I spend to support others. And even seeing my dad on our trip to Las Vegas, he was giving money to homeless people. So things like that have encouraged me to be better and be more socially focused when I give. Wow, there's a lot there. Some great examples from your father. Talk a little bit about, so you talked about saving. I wondered what your first job was that you earned. Didn't need to be a paycheck, but just any job you did that you first earned money and what you did with the money that you earned. Yeah, so one of the key jobs I remember was actually breaking my teacher's leaves during fall time. And I made $20 from that. And I actually saved that $20 for a bit because it was the first money I'd ever actually earned. But I think I spent it later. But another like key experience was actually my first paid fellowship. And I put the money in my savings account. I just didn't really spend it. So I've just always been a huge saver in general. Okay. So you're going to take me back because it's October, which means it's the fall on the East Coast. I had one of those teacher raking leaves jobs and I didn't have a pair of gloves. And I got blisters like there was nobody's business. I hope you had gloves or maybe even a blower, which would be even better. Yeah, we just had actual rakes. I don't think we had gloves, but I feel like it wasn't too cold because I feel like I would have remembered if it was miserable. Okay. All right. Awesome. So you are, as I said earlier, you're studying finance or finance, depending on how you want to pronounce it, but wondered, yeah, talk a little bit about your path to studying at Purdue. Yeah. So something I actually really care about even before my financial literacy advocacy was human trafficking. That's something I've cared about since I was 12. And I was really inspired by Malala and her oral advocacy. So I definitely branched out into doing other things with anti-trafficking. So I really wanted to learn the skills necessary to manage an anti-trafficking nonprofit. So I thought, why not study management? But then I realized you can learn to manage an entity in many different ways. You don't have to study management. So why not learn something more specific so I can help any organization I work for in a concrete way? So I switched to finance because I feel like that's more me. I've appreciated the quantitative coursework I've had. And I'm ultimately glad I made that decision. 
and you are currently a junior, is that right? Yeah, I'm a junior. All right, favorite class so far? Favorite class? This is kind of a weird answer, but I actually took a blockchain class last semester. And it's not like a formal class, but it's by this university club called Boiler Blockchain. And it was really cool because I had never learned about blockchain technology before or cryptocurrency. And it kind of made me want to join the club. And it was just a great experience to learn about emerging technology. So you talked about wanting to study management so you could run an anti-trafficking uh, nonprofit at one time. You switched your focus to finance. Yeah, talk about your nonprofit that you did form around financial literacy. What motivated you to do it and what programming you're currently providing? Yeah, so when I was in high school, I was actually in a youth policymaking program in my state and there were different groups. So I was in the educational economic inequity group. So that meant we had to create a proposal relating to that. So we actually found that financial education paves the way for e economic mobility for Indiana youth in general. So we decided, hey, let's advocate for a mandatory personal finance class to 400 plus Indiana policymakers. So we did that and I was able to speak on different panels, the Closing the Gap series, Youth-Led Policy in the Heartland panel. And I was able to make publications in the Policy Circle and the Indianapolis Recorder about financial literacy. But then I saw that there were a lot of people who spent years doing financial literacy advocacy and they weren't getting anywhere. And that annoyed me because at the time there wasn't much progress. Less than 10 states had a requirement for a standalone personal finance class. In the past couple of years, that's been getting a lot better with some big states like Florida adopting mandates. At the time, I was just really annoyed with policy. So I decided, let me do something about it. So with the mentor from my policy group, we decided to co-found Building Financial Freedom. And some events we've done, we did an event with Northwestern Mutual. It was a money management series. It was a two-day event. And we also did a, it was basically an investment panel with a Berkshire Hathaway conference speaker. And so we basically find organizations, form collaborations, and tailor our events to them. So right now, we're working with Lafayette Urban Ministry, a local social services organization in my community, to really connect a focus group on what their clients want in terms of financial education. And then we're working with another local credit union to figure out financial coaching and how we could pair different people to the services they need. So that's basically what we do. And we're technically not actually a nonprofit yet. We're trying to obtain 5123 status and we've been able to impact around 200 people internationally. We were able to speak at Global Money Week and impact 40 Nigerian youth. And I think now we want to have an underserved group focus. So like I'm trying to contact native coalitions because I want to focus on people who are often forgotten. And I feel like that's a group that's very forgotten, even though that's the first group you should think of when you're talking about underserved. So I want to be intentional in that and have this new focus for BFF. And my co-founder seems to agree. And we're trying to expand our team as well. So we're doing some big changes right now, but I'm very excited to see where our organization can go. Love the ambition. Well, apparently you did a pretty good job, even though you were frustrated by policy because something happened in Indiana that hadn't happened before. You yeah. want to let people know? Yeah, so Indiana actually adopted a mandatory personal finance class for upcoming secondary students, which is great. I'm glad that's finally a reality in Indiana. And I'm glad that there's a lot of momentum in the financial education movement. Yeah, so you talked about the importance of financial education to economic mobility. Do you want to take that a, a few steps further in terms of why you think that's such a critical piece? Yeah. So in terms of why I think that's critical, I think there's just a lot of research on how a lot of 
youth especially don't get financial literacy education and how it can help them. Like I know there's the Council for Economic Education. They have a survey every year which shows which states require economics or personal finance classes. And it's very bad to see that some states don't because personal finance classes encourage logical decision-making and having states not have this is definitely increasing inequality because if you're richer, you're probably going to have access to this education. I remember reading about how students in schools with higher free and reduced lunch populations, they tend to not even have the class offered, let alone have a requirement for a standalone personal finance course. But if you're at a richer school with less people who are on free and reduced lunch, you don't have that, which is really unfair. Even in T. Rowe Price's annual survey of parents, kids, and money, a lot of parents don't even talk about money to their kids. And kids learn a lot of lessons from their parents. They wish their parents would talk more about credit, budgeting, and creating a savings account. Not many parents indicate financial goals. So if you're not prepared in this way, you're going to make a lot of dumb mistakes in the future that could have been avoided. So I think it's important because this affects students of all ages, races, income levels. So I think it's just critical and this is something we all need to know. So why not make it mandatory? So I don't know whether studying finance, they kind of go, at least when I was an undergrad in finance, I don't ever remember taking a personal finance course. Don't know if that's been the case for you, but just wonder, you strike me as somebody who's also probably very curious uh, about this and doing a lot of self-study on your own. I, I wonder how you learned about this. Yeah. So in terms of personal finance, I actually took a class in high school. It wasn't required, but I went out of my, I went out of my way to take it. So that was interesting. I didn't really learn that much, but at least I took it. And then actually in university, I have taken one as well. It wasn't required again, but I still took it. But in terms of outside education, I really like looking at market watch to look at the market and I also look at Motley Fool, especially in terms of investment information. Those would be my key sources. Yeah, Motley Fool, especially with their podcast and their website, I would definitely say that's my top source. Since you mentioned it, how would you describe yourself as an investor in terms of your approach? Individual stocks versus index funds? You mentioned earlier that you had brought somebody on from uh, Berkshire Hathaway, I think, for one of your events, which for folks who may not be aware, that's the holding company that Warren Buffett runs. So it seems like you're pretty steeped in this world of investing. Would just love to hear about your approach. Yeah. So currently it's just stocks, but I definitely want to expand. I would love to buy a bond right now. That'd be a great thing to do at this current moment. But my treasury account is actually still pending. So I can't even do that right now, which is annoying. But I also want more ETFs just to really broaden my investments. And then also CDs, I want to invest in that as well. But right now it's just stocks. Why are bonds so appealing to you? Bonds are just way more of a safe investment than stocks. Stocks are more likely to change day to day, but a bond, you get a return that's set and you're probably not going to lose money in the way that you would with a stock. I like that guaranteed sense of income. I like fixed income and it's just very reliable. And you're benefiting from, I think I saw today, the 10 year note almost hit 5%, which, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was about two and a half, three percent. And so it's a yeah. real, obviously as a saver, you like when interest rates are high. Unfortunately, it's also hitting borrowers, right? I think I'm hearing about mortgage rates, which might hit 8%, which yeah. again, 
is really kind of putting the brakes a little bit on the housing market. Yeah, it's definitely unfortunate, but I guess there's dual sides to every situation in some way investing or buying something will be appealing, but then you could invest or buy something else. So our audience here is primarily high school teachers. I think you're an excellent example, an excellent model of what social entrepreneur is. If you were going to go back into a high school classroom and want to explain to people both what a social entrepreneur is and why they might want to consider going down that path, what would you tell them? So I would just explain that social entrepreneurship is basically combining business and social impact. Like I would not consider a nonprofit owner, a social entrepreneur. Like a lot of them may call themselves social entrepreneur. And I know the title doesn't really exist in a lot of places formally, but like here in America, we have a lot of standards for B Corps and social enterprises. So I think social entrepreneurship is great because you get to have the best of both worlds. You can have a return, but also support society and have a good cause. Some people don't like donating because they're not getting anything out of it. But if you can have a social enterprise, then they can see both sides of the coin. And I think it's just a great idea. I definitely love to either have a social enterprise in the future or create a VC firm dedicated to supporting social enterprises that are focused on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. All right, for those not familiar, do you want to explain what a VC is? Oh, yeah. So venture capital is basically when you're funding businesses. So like a venture capital firm might look at potential businesses they could invest in and decide if they want to give them money or not. So I'd be interested in doing that in the future for businesses that want to benefit society. Again, you you strike me as somebody who's puts a social justice lens on things. Talk about how venture capital is skewed today. So I think there's a big emphasis on just emerging technologies like AI, VR. And that makes sense. That's something that people are going to be focused on in the future. And that's going to shape every aspect of our lives. It's doing that right now with prompt engineering. So I think that's a key thing. But I think people are getting more interested in the social lens as well. I think there's more momentum that could be had. But I know there's a lot of VC firms focused on supporting like environmental causes, for example, and like more of an interest in impact investing, which is again, investing with that social impact in mind. So I think that's great to see. And I hope we can continue that social trend. This is another subject I think educators will be interested in is internships. Mm -hmm. You strike me as somebody who's been very successful. And I wonder if you could share kind of your strategy for success that they could share with their students, as well as some of the experiences you've had as an intern. Yeah, so I guess starting off with some experiences, I had my first internship in high school at a local candy shop, and I just reached out to them through email, and they allowed me to intern. It was really more like shadowing, but by taking that initiative, I got it. And then in freshman year of university, and that's because at Purdue, I'm part of the Business Opportunity Program, which is basically a minority program that supports Black, Latino, and Native students studying business. And we have a culture of academic and professional excellence, so that means we're all focused on internships. So because of my quality resume, I had high school awards, national awards, publications, and I had a major that fit with the internships I was applying to. I was able to get offers from Rolls-Royce and IDEX Corporation. And since then, I've had more internship and externship opportunities. This past summer, I was doing AI venture capital activities, product management, nonprofit consulting, and I also had other offers from Salesforce and Mizuho. And I think some key strategies to actually getting an internship One is networking with recruiters on LinkedIn. 
I use LinkedIn all the time to connect with people. And that's a great way to meet people around the world that you might not have access to, especially being at Purdue. We're not really a target business school. So how am I going to know about the best opportunities, best internships? I'm not going to know. So really connecting with people, recruiters and people who've had internships I'm interested in. And another thing really is practicing behavioral questions. Behavioral questions are like, name a time when you showed leadership, for example, and technical questions as well. So like I'm finance. So they've asked me finance questions before. So actually understanding that and practicing that is key. Another thing is knowing why you want to work at the company. If you don't know and you can't explain that, they're not going to hire you. And also be able to explain how you're a great fit for the company. Maybe tie it back to the values. That's what I always do. And it seemed to work. And constantly interviewing. That's another thing. Like I'm always interviewing for different positions, not just internships. I had an ambassadorship interview recently and a youth board interview actually recently as well. So I'm always interviewing and sharpening my skills. But lastly, ask questions. If you're really interested in this place, you think you'd want to know more and you have someone right in front of you that's working there. So those are really my key strategies to getting an internship. But even in addition to all of those, have experiences that the internship would want and that are relevant. If you know what you want to do in the future, you should be having relevant experiences. I'm interested in policy. So I have a lot of policy fellowships right now and youth delegations, different things like that. So really all of those things can contribute to having a good internship. And even if you don't get it, you can keep trying. There's nothing wrong with failing as long as you keep getting back up. Wow, folks, I think that, I don't know if that was four or five minutes, but if you could grab that excerpt and share it with every one of your students, there's so much you've just unpacked there. Initiative, ABI, I'm gonna start saying that, always be interviewing. This idea of like, the more reps you do, the better you'll get at it. And then this idea of failure, because you're not gonna get every, internships are wildly competitive. And so you gotta kind of just get up and, off the mat every once in a while and just learn from that experience. That's great. How about succeeding at the internship once you're there? Yeah. So in terms of succeeding, making sure you stand out. If they give you opportunities to participate and then participate, you know, you want to stick out. And then asking questions. Like I ask a lot of questions in general because I want clarity. And even in my first internship, they said that that was a good thing in my evaluation. I didn't think about it that way but they enjoyed that because it showed I was interested. And also doing the work and interacting with people, it's important if you want to continue working there, if you want to make a good impression, do the work properly, do it well, and talk to your coworkers, talk to people around the firm, get to know everybody. So those are the main things I would say. Yeah, it's funny. You were mentioning LinkedIn earlier also. And I believe that's how we connected. You reached out to me. And I got to tell you, I'm always impressed because I think what you sent me was a very detailed message. You know, oftentimes people will say, hey, it'll be a very brief message. And you really put a lot of thought into this is the reason I'm reaching out to you. And this is what I want. And I think there's a message there, which is, I think a lot of adults want to help young people. And the more you can make it easier by letting us know how we can help versus just the the connection. I, I remember that that really stood out to me that you were somebody who knew exactly what you wanted. And so I'm glad we connected. Definitely. And I definitely agree with that. Whenever I connect with someone, it's because they're doing something I'm interested in or they're just cool and I want to connect. And I always give a tagline that is 
related to what they do and related to what I'm interested in. So like if I'm interested in someone doing financial literacy advocacy, I'll say something like connecting as a financial literacy advocate, or if they're interested in policy, connecting as a policy advocate, because I am interested in both. So I'll just tailor it to the person. And that's smart, because if you don't have a tagline, then it's like, I don't even know what the relationship is and why would they accept me? But when I do that, they're more likely to accept my request. And it shows you've done the work. Like it shows you've done the research so that they know it's so beneficial in so many ways. I thought I came across you spending some time at Bridgewater Associates. Is that right? I did a fellowship with them. It was an online three-week fellowship, but yeah. Okay. So tell folks about Bridgewater Associates, what? One of the largest, is it hedge so, fund, private equity? I, I forget what classification yeah. they fall into. So Bridgewater is a hedge fund and they have a fellowship program for mainly minorities. And it was a three-week program virtual, but I learned about hedge funds. I learned about Bridgewater and that was cool because it made me interested in investment management as a field. So like I was also able to do a fellowship at DE Shaw, which is another like investment management, huge company. And I really enjoyed that experience. And the kids I met there, I've met them so many other places, so many other fellowships. And so that was cool. That was my first introduction to Bridgewater. I didn't know what it was before. And being from a non-target school again, I think that was a great opportunity to mingle with other kids interested in finance from across the country. Yeah. So Bridgewater, you know, founded by Ray Dalio, who's a prolific author. I think he wrote a book called Principles. And then there's a little trivia. Do you know who came out of D.E. Shaw? One of D.E. Shaw's yeah, most Bezos. famous alumni. Bezos. That's no, that's part of the reason I want to work there. They have so many smart people like that. Like I'm trying to get an internship there at some point, even if I don't get it this year, I plan to keep trying. I just love the culture. Like that's somewhere I'm so excited about. Yeah. And you, you mentioned this because I went to a school that was non-target too. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how that game works about target schools and non-target schools when it comes to maybe some of the most difficult jobs to get, whether it's in management consulting or finance. Yeah. So obviously like going to Purdue, a lot of like big three consulting firms, they're not paying attention to us unless you're on the engineering side, for example, because we're a big engineering school. Investment banking, that's not something that would come to Purdue. So like a lot of top areas, we're not known in and they're not going to pay attention to us. So what you can do is do insight programs. Companies a lot of times have hour-long programs or week-long virtual events, sometimes in-person events, really to talk about themselves and to learn about you. Sometimes they fly you out to different places. So signing up for those, doing those freshman year really helped me and it looks competitive on your resume. I think that's key. And it also gives you a chance to network. Something that's really important is connecting with people at schools that are better than you. Because if I go to Purdue, I'm only seeing opportunities that Purdue students know about. But why would I not connect with someone at Harvard? Because they are getting different opportunities that I will never hear about. Like That just makes no sense. So I've been doing that. And I've done that for a long time. One of my connections, yeah, actually did a fellowship at DE Shaw. And I thought that was cool. I applied. I got it. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have realized that I really like that firm, that culture, and that I want to work there. So really connecting with people better than you and engaging in company programs, that's key if you want to stick out and eventually get other opportunities. Any mentors you have, you know, people who you look up as you think about kind of where you want to be 5, 10, 20 years down the road, any business biographies you've read or people you really respect in terms of the impact they're having either in business or through social entrepreneurship? I think most of the people I really look up to are in social impact. 
I don't think I can think of a single business figure that I'm really excited about and want to be necessarily. But for example, Malala, she was probably one of the first people that inspired me because she did a lot of oral advocacy. And at the time I had only done written advocacy about like anti-trafficking. I only like wrote letters to fashion brands inquiring about their anti-trafficking efforts in the supply chain. I didn't actually say anything, but she encouraged me in that youth policymaking fellowship to speak out about anti-exploitation policies. So I would say her, I'm impressed by her impact in winning the Nobel Prize at a young age. And then Sophia Chiani, I think she does a lot of great stuff too. She's a founder of Climate Cardinals and just a lot of environmental activism. I think that's cool too, because she's done that at such a young age. She's going to Stanford right now and she's had a huge global impact. So I think someone like that is cool as well. But I am also interested in business and social entrepreneurship and combining business and social impact. I haven't found someone I'm interested in who does both things on such a large scale. But I guess one person I can shout out is my social entrepreneurship teacher. I took a class last semester and that was the first time I really considered social entrepreneurship. So I guess I'd shout her out as well. What do you think business adds to nonprofit, right? Because people often look at them as two different worlds. And you've said on several occasions, like applying business principles to solving a social problem. How can business help? I think you just need a business mindset and anything you do if you want to have impact. Because one of the organizations I worked for, they're called Mission Jade. They basically prevent the labor trafficking of boys in Guatemala. And they were a nonprofit. But now they're transitioning to a for-profit side and a non-profit side, so like a social enterprise. And that's better because they don't have to scramble for money. They can actually function without having to compromise on a lot of different things because they're lacking funds. So I think that's really key. There's a lot of competition in nonprofits. There's a lot of competition for funding and grants, and it's not that easy to get them. So if you can have an enterprise aspect of your endeavor, then it just makes it way easier. Nope, that makes a lot of sense. How do you balance all of this? You've talked about fellowships. You've talked about inner, I mean, you strike me as somebody who's probably working 80 hours a week right now. How do you manage? Yeah, time? so a lot of the fellowships and stuff like that, they're at random times. So it's not like a set schedule. And even now I'm actually dropping certain activities that are stressing me out because it's not worth it. And then I've actually been adopting some activities at the same time, but there's less of a time requirement, if that makes sense. Like I'm joining an academic advisory board, but they only meet like four times a year, but I wanted to do it. So joining things that I want to do that aren't too much of a time commitment, while also getting rid of stuff that's really just stressing me out, taking away from my sleep, not adding value to my life. I think that's really important. So I'm definitely able to manage, and especially because I'm getting older in my academic journey, the classes are getting harder, right? So that's even more important to have time for these classes. You're constantly looking at your to-do list and you're pruning things that are either causing you stress or strain or just aren't tied to kind of your long-term vision of what you want to do. I think this semester, definitely. Like I definitely focus a lot on exploration since being in college. And I still am in a lot of ways because I have so much time, but I'm also limiting stuff because I don't need to be doing stuff I don't care about. So I think I'm getting better at like really refining what I want to do. If you went back to a high school classroom, what would you tell them you know now that you wish you knew when you were 18 in that senior year in high school? Maybe that academics aren't everything. I went to 
a high school in the same community that I'm from. So like, I'm going to Purdue right now and I'm from West Lafayette. I went to high school in West Lafayette and we're a college town. So basically all of our parents are professors. So that kind of shows like we're really academic and we're a really smart school. And the culture is kind of toxic there. Like a lot of people are really stressed out and feel like they're not good enough. Like one of my friends, she definitely felt like she wasn't good enough because she wasn't a STEM person. Yet she's a boring scholar right now, living her best life in Japan. She's also a Frederick Douglass fellow. So it's like, she's doing all that. The grades at that point don't matter. So grades aren't everything. And I think at my school, that's definitely the culture. So I definitely encourage them to do other stuff besides just worry about that. Any books you want to recommend? Again, I know you got a lot of academics going on and you got a lot of activities you're doing outside of the classroom, but any books that you think teachers might want to recommend to their students? Any books? The thing is, I don't remember most of the names of the books I read and I don't remember the authors either. I just remember interesting books I read throughout school. Like I liked Animal Farm. That was one of my favorite books. I also like Huckleberry Finn. I liked The Odyssey as well, which a lot of people in my school didn't like. And I probably recommend those because I feel like Huckleberry Finn, especially the way Huck Finn really struggles, feeling like he's a bad person because he wants to support the slave, even though he isn't. I think that like ethical dilemma, I think we go through a lot of those in life, maybe not to that length, but we all have ethical dilemmas. I love reading ethics books. So I think something like that, it's just great to think about. But I'd say books on ethics and ethical dilemmas. I have this one that I always read. It's at my house. And it just lists ethical dilemmas in different areas, like scientific, really just like so many different areas. And it's great like to think about. And I think books where you can think are some of the best books. So I, if I knew the name, it's like a hundred something ethical dilemmas, something like that. But I recommend that. Thank you for being so bold, Rachel. I think that's the word I'm going to always put in front of your name. No, thank you for reaching out and giving me the opportunity to speak with you today. Incredible. It's going to be fun to follow you in the future too. So thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Tim and Rachel. I have a few final housekeeping items before we go. The show notes of full transcript can be found on ngpf.org slash podcasts. You can also join these sessions live and ask the speaker questions by signing up for the NGPF Speaker Series sessions that occur on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific time. You can sign up to attend on ngpf.org slash virtual pd. Please be sure to subscribe to the NGPF podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Better yet, leave us a review. We love hearing from you and it will help us reach a broader audience. On behalf of Tim and Rachel, thank you so much for tuning in to this NGPF podcast.